Our sermon today continues on in our uh, sermon series, True and Better, the Gospel of John. And today we'll be picking up where we left off last week, looking at John chapter 3, starting in verse 19, going through verse 21. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for scripture. Um, inspired by you, where you reveal yourself and what you're about, and thus reveal who we are and what we are to be about. And so in these moments, moved by your Spirit, bless the reading and the preaching of Scripture. Move upon our hearts, Lord, to hear this not only with our ears, but hear it with our hearts. Open our hearts um, to understand, to see, and to hear what you would have to say to us today. Show us the beauty and majesty of Jesus that we may love him and depend upon him all the more. I pray all this in his matchless name. Amen. <clears throat> in August 1973, a man walked into a bank in Stockholm, Sweden with a gun. And he told the teller that he was there for money. Uh, you know, stick. I don't know if he said stick him up, but he was robbing the bank. But quickly, things kind of got away from his plan because suddenly the bank was surrounded by cops. The man did what we tend to see in movies. He took hostages. So there, for the next six days, this bank robber held people, four people, at gunpoint, not allowing them to go out. And then over those six days, he and the cops went back and forth negotiating. And eventually, on that sixth day, the cop came, cops came up with a plan. They were able to get into the bank, subdue the guy. And they were beginning, they thought, to arrive as heroes to set the, the prisoners free, the people who had been hostage for six whole days. But what they found surprised them. When they came in to free these people who had been captive, they weren't received as heroes. They were actually kind of seen as suspicious enemies. They found the people who had been held hostage to be uncooperative. They didn't want to help the police. They didn't want to talk to the police about the man that held them captive. In fact, they began to defend him, saying that he was right to rob the bank, right to hold them hostage, and that the cops should let them go. Well, this baffled the police. And so the police brought specialists in to interview the people. And in the aftermath of that <clears throat> came what uh, we call today, what's commonly heard as Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. Maybe you've heard that before. Stockholm Syndrome is when someone who has been kidnapped or abused begins to identify with and forms kind of this emotional bond with the person who's kidnapped or abused them to the point that the person who's been kidnapped or abused will reject ways out and they'll prefer their captivity to freedom. They'll defend the person who's held them captive or the person who's abused them, who's treated them wrongly. Uh, they'll begin to identify with that person over even them on their own selves. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. Here in our passage today in John 3, what's described is kind of what we could call a spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Um, we've just read that passage. We've seen that people <clears throat> trapped in darkness, held captive by the power of sin, have stared into the illuminating light of Jesus that has come into this world, and they have done what? Turned their back on him. They have fled further into the darkness. They, we, 
we have grown so used to the darkness that we prefer it to the salvation and illumination, the light that Jesus would bring. It's a spiritual Stockholm Syndrome to see the victorious and freeing light of Jesus coming into the kingdom of our darkness and turning away from it to, to run further back in. But thankfully, thankfully, friends, this isn't the end of the story. We are not lost without hope. We are not destined to waste away in the darkness of our captivity of sin to sin. Um, so, <clears throat> with that said, let's look at our passage this morning. We'll break it up into a couple of different points to help get our mind around it. And the first one's this. In Jesus, light has come into our world, which is filled with darkness. In Jesus, light has come into our world, which is filled with darkness. <clears throat> the beginning of verse 19 states this plainly. Look at it again. This is the verdict. Remember, uh, Gospel of John is kind of like this courtroom drama. Jesus is actually who's on trial. Is what he says he is and what he's done true? Well, John interjects here to say this is the verdict. Light, Jesus, has come into the world. Now, this concept of light and darkness is one that's prominent throughout the whole Bible. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see it mentioned over and over again as a metaphor, light as a metaphor uh, for God's work in this world. You'll see light as, uh, as, as the, the way to describe the glory of God, that God shines uh, forth. And it'll use uh, darkness to characterize life without God or darkness to characterize life against God or against other people. Um, take Psalm 104, from it, for instance. It describes God's glory as God wearing light like a cloak or like a jacket, that he clothes himself with light. Or Psalm 27, uh, where God is described by David, who wrote the psalm, as his light and his salvation. Or uh, if you turn to Ezekiel 1, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, God is described as having light all around him. Or take Psalm 119, where God's instruction to his people is called a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Or uh, take one of the, the most prominent and well-known, the very first few verses of Scripture, which we read actually in our uh, call to worship today. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and what? The earth was without form and void, and darkness... Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. These verses are especially key for our understanding of how the Old Testament uses light to describe God's work. Genesis 1 describes the earth before uh, the calling forth of light as something without form and void. It's chaos, and it's empty. But God calls forth he calls forth and begins to bring order and fullness. Order to the chaos and fullness to that emptiness. And what's his very first step in doing this? Light. God, by his powerful word, defeats the void and the formlessness of darkness by his creative work. And it's that understanding of God saying, let there be light. And that be his work of bringing order to the chaos and fullness to the emptiness that informed the Old Testament's use of light over and over again. And so when we come to a passage like Isaiah 9, which we also used in our call to worship, it speaks of the coming of the Messiah, God's future kind of final ultimate bringing of order and fullness, his bringing of salvation for his people. The coming of the Messiah, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And so we see that the Old Testament pictures the redemption that God is bringing as the triumph of light over darkness. The triumph of light over darkness. And so this picture of light and dark is what the the gospel writer, John, is using when he speaks about in John 1, Jesus being the light, who uh, the true light that shines on everyone. When he speaks about the light coming into our world, that's what he's using. He's reaching back to these Old Testament ideas, these Old Testament uh, images to tell us what Jesus is up to. That's why John starts exactly like the book of Genesis, if you notice. If you look at John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning. It's, it's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1. It's saying that the coming of Jesus into our world is nothing short of a new creation. In other words, Jesus is the let there be light of God's new creation. Just like the let there be light in Genesis 1 brought order to the chaos and fullness to the emptiness, he began that work of creation. The let there be light of Jesus brings order to our chaos and the fullness of his blessing and grace to the emptiness of our sin. It brings light into our darkness. As I said, the coming of Jesus into our world is the ultimate, the true and better, if you will, let there be light. That's why 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says the, that God has let his light shine in our hearts that we might see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God is bringing his new creation to bear in our world where the old creation, old creation has been marred and destroyed by sin in so many ways. God's new creation comes in and he promises us that he's defeating sin and all of his power and making all things new. And so Jesus is described as the light of the world. And that's our first point. Like I said, in Jesus, God's light has come into our world of darkness. But how can Jesus said to be light? What does that mean? What does light do? Well, let's talk about that a little bit in the second point here. How can Jesus be said to be light? Well, first, Light brings hope for those who are lost. Imagine someone lost in the woods, for instance. What, what, are, uh, what are Boy Scouts trained to do <laughs> when the first time they go camping? Look up in the night sky and find the North Star. You can get your bearing. You find your bearing by the light in the sky. Um, or if you go camping, you really hope it's a full moon or partially a full moon. Uh, so you have enough light to see around you. It's the same thing. Light brings hope for those who are lost. And so this is one of the things that Jesus does. In John chapter 1, he says he's the true light that gives light to all mankind. The idea is that apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus, all would be darkness. We would be stuck. We would be stuck and lost. What else does light do? Light brings clarity for those who are confused. Think about a surgeon. surgeon who's operating on <laughs> someone's insides, has him, uh, you know, open heart surgery. Uh, if they didn't have the light shining down, all of their training, all of their expertise, all of their steady hands would be useless because they would not be able to see. But the light brings the clarity that the surgeon needs to be able to do the operation. And throughout this gospel of John, you'll see that Jesus in his conversations with people, he brings clarification to a number of people. We've just seen this conversation he's had with Nicodemus. Jesus, Jesus brings up two Old Testament images to explain to Nicodemus, a man who was a teacher of the Old Testament, 
a, a master of it in a sense. He would have been an expert. Jesus clarifies for him what these passages, who may have, which may have confused Nicodemus, meant. Uh, we'll see in John chapter 4, which we'll be in in a couple of weeks. Jesus has a conversation with a woman at a well, and he brings immense clarity to her in a life that has been nothing but confusion uh, of people sinning against her. So he brings clarity to the situation. What else does light do? Light also reveals and illuminates. Light shows you what's really going on. Uh, this is the kind of central image going on here in John 3. Jesus as light has come to reveal and to illuminate, to show what's really going on. I remember, I remember a number of years ago, I was over at one of my best friend's houses, and we were playing in his room, and we heard something going on in the attic. And the way his house was laid out, it had access to the attic right there in the room. And so what we did, we grabbed their flashlights and we decided, I think we were in like sixth grade, we decided we were going to, you know, play detective. And so we opened the door and we're crawling around the attic and we've got our lights. We keep hearing this noise and we shine it over and suddenly we see right there in our, you know, in the beam of our, our uh, flashlights, there's a possum. Possum freezes, we freeze, the possum hisses at us, we turn and run. Um which at the time was terrifying, is now very funny uh, to imagine two you know, uh, sixth-grade boys fleeing from a, a possum in an attic. But what had happened? We were totally confused. In our sixth-grade imaginations, that could have been you know, anything <laughs> in the attic. But we found what? We found uh, the light revealed what was really there and clarified what needed to happen next. It illuminated what was going on. The same is true of Jesus and his illuminating light. It's, but here's the thing. That light, for me and my friend, was good news. We were able to find out what was making the noise. For the possum, it was bad news. Because the possum, I think, lost his home after that. May have lost his uh, life. We went and got his dad. We didn't deal with it anymore. But it was bad news for the possum. The possum couldn't keep uh, digging around, doing what he was doing, uh, looking for food or, or whatever he was uh, <laughs> looking for there in the attic. And that's true with Jesus. Jesus brings his illuminating, revealing, clarifying light into our world, and it's good news for some, and it's bad news for others. And it's all really dependent on what our relationship with Jesus is. Um, we see that come to light as we continue reading in our verses. Look at uh, verses 19 and 20, and we'll see our next point. To those who do evil, the light of Jesus is bad news. Look with me again at verse 19. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The illuminating light of Jesus coming to our world is bad news for people who love the darkness or for people who have built their life around uh, operating in the way the darkness of our world works. Just like the people in our opening story in Stockholm Syndrome came to identify with the captor in their bank robbery, just like the people who defend their abusers over themselves in a variety of situations, our thinking, because of our being entrapped in darkness, can become so warped that we think of the darkness that is killing us as our comforting home, as a place to hide. But it's more than that. As our verses state here, those who do evil hate the light. The, the idea here is not just that we're prisoners of the light. We're not just prisoners of the darkness of sin, but we're also active doers of sin. We're not only victims, we're perpetrators, right? Now, that doesn't make all sin equal. 
you know, Hitler's not equal to, <laughs> you know, somebody who uh, shoplifts. Doesn't make all sin equal. But the reality is, in our world of darkness, we aren't just victims. We're also perpetrators. We're not also we're not only those who are sinned against. We are those who sin against others. And this isn't something that we like to admit, right? We get defensive right away. We get defensive right away when we start thinking about not just that we are sinners in a generic sense, because I think we can all say that, but when we start to get down to it, how does my selfishness, how does my sin actually manifest in my life? How do I show myself as someone who is sinful? It's not something we like to look at. We're not ready to claim it. And that's why our impulse is to run and hide because we're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being exposed. And light, one of the things it does is expose. And that's what the light of Jesus does. It comes in and exposes. Light not only helps those without hope and gives clarity to those who are confused, it also reveals things that would otherwise not be seen. So while there's a comfort to knowing that the light has come in Jesus, there's also a bit of a, a bit of a threat, a bit of a danger, particularly for those of us who have used the darkness of this world to indulge in the selfish mo- motives of sin. Now we mentioned earlier the the gospel's use of light. It, it paints Jesus as the bringer of God's new creation. He is the let there be light of God's redemptive work, and this is wonderful news if you're longing for a new creation. But if you've stood to benefit from the old creation, the old order of things that is marred by sin, it's actually a threat. The light of Jesus exposes things that you probably don't want to be exposed. It does for me. Now this is the reaction in Jesus' own day. This fleeing from him because of the light that exposes. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus treated by the religious leaders as a threat. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their claims. Even though he is the fulfillment of all their scriptures, he's the fulfillment of their hopes and the prophecies and the promises and the frustrations. He arrives and is there in front of them, and they turn away from him, and not only turn away from him, eventually uh, eventually, they work in tandem with the state. They have him arrested on trumped-up charges and eventually executed as an enemy, executed as a blasphemer, even though he's God himself. Why? Because Jesus was too much of a threat to the system that they had built up. He was too much a threat to them personally and individually as well. They, they, uh, If Jesus was really here, the true light of God was coming into the world, they stood to lose too much. They stood to lose too much because he was going to expose what they did not want exposed. They were, as verse 20 said, afraid that the light of Jesus would expose them for who they really were. You know, they were seen to be religious and upstanding, but to come to Jesus means you admit to your powerlessness in yourself. Think about it. They probably felt like they had a good thing going, that they were the religious experts, that they really knew God. The idea that God would have to basically invade this world with his grace, that he would have to make a new creation because the old order of things was so corrupt and so destructive 
that stood uh, <laughs> to undermine everything that they had built up, uh, their identities around, everything that they had lived and worked so hard for, the idea that God would come into this world to give them grace, that they would have to receive like a baby. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago with Nicodemus. He tells him, you have to be born again. You have to come to God by faith, bringing nothing in your hands, <clears throat> nothing in your hands but your need. Not bringing your accomplishments, not bringing the things that you think you're, are so impressive, but coming, bringing your need and receiving from Him all things by His grace, not by earning it, not by merit. If your whole identity has been built up in the world of darkness that we live in, that tries to elbow each other out of the way to climb to the top of the hill, king of the hill, if that's your mindset of the world, the arrival of Jesus and his illuminating, exposing light is an incredible threat. Because the darkness, uh, and, and of course they responded the way they did, which is often the way we respond. We flee. Jesus is too much of a threat. So they flee where? Into the darkness, to their home, to the cloak. Whereas our next, think about it this way, the darkness becomes not only a trap, which we've seen, it's also a place to hide. Now there's an impulse for us, I think, a very real impulse that we might not even be aware of all the time to flee from, from Jesus. Jesus may be calling us into a, a, a grace that we don't really want, calling us to ask hard questions about ourselves or hard questions about the things that we tend to take uh, greater pride in. Um, and Jesus may be leading us to love in sacrificial ways, and we kind of don't want to. And so we may flee the illuminating light of Jesus for fear of what it means. Coming to Jesus means admitting to ourselves and admitting to everyone else that we are people in need. In fact, that's what we say every single Sunday. When we gather for worship, whether online or in person, when we gather for worship, we're declaring to ourselves, we're declaring to our families, we're declaring to everyone who may see us drive up to where we're meeting, getting out of the car and going inside, we're declaring to everyone that I am a mess and I desperately need the grace of God. I am a mess and I desperately need the grace of God because I cannot do this life on my own. I cannot do it. And so that's what one of the things that worship is. We come in to the church to worship together, to declare that God is worthy, but to declare as well that apart from Him, <laughs> apart from Him, we're goners. Apart from Him working on our behalf, we are without hope. That is why the church is not a place for the proud. The church is not a place for us to put on our very best clothes and posture for each other and pretend like everything is okay. No, the church is a place for us to come in and realize that without each other, especially, especially without the Jesus who brings us together, we are lost. As one of my former pastors used to say all the time, all the time. The church is not a museum for the saints to display their works. It's a hospital for sinners. But better yet, it's a home. It's a place where we come for healing and we never leave. We never leave because this is our home. 
again, coming in as children of God who have been made children of God by Jesus with open hands to receive all that our Father has for us. To flee from the darkness, which we think is a place to hide, but is really just suffocating us, to come into the kingdom of His light, to come into the kingdom of Jesus. Now, the impulse is for us to run from this. We don't want to come to Jesus because it might cost us too much, or so we think. The impulse is for us to stay under our cloak of darkness, to lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that we don't need Jesus, really, but in doing so, we're just laying a trap for ourselves. You know, I heard a story recently about a man who had become addicted to uh, video games. Apparently, this has become more and more of an issue. Not just people who enjoy playing video games or play them a little bit, but people who um, whose entire lives kind of fall apart all around them because of their commitment to a video game. Um, and the man, he admitted openly that he had a problem, that his love for playing this one particular video game had taken over his life to the point that he wasn't showering, he wasn't taking care of himself, he wasn't eating regularly, he, his sleep schedule was almost non-existent. His body was falling apart. And he knew that, and he admitted he had a problem, but he was so incredibly resistant to do anything about it. For all intents and purposes, he was slowly killing himself, but he feared facing up to the reality. He thought he was hiding in his world of this video game, but the truth is that he had fallen in love with his chains. He had fallen in love with his chains. He had fallen in love with this darkness who was, it was, that was suffocating him and cutting him off from the rest of his life. Now, that's not to say video games are, are evil. I play video games and love them. Um, but the point here, the illustration here, the idea at work, is that darkness is suffocating us. It's all around us in our world. And apart from Jesus, we're stuck in it. And as we've said, we're not just victims of sin, we're perpetrators of it. We're perpetrators of darkness. We're not just stuck, we really love uh, being hidden because we're afraid of the shame being exposed. We're afraid of what that might mean. And that all sounds bleak, but the good news is it doesn't have to be this way. Yes, for those who do evil things, which truthfully is all of us, the light of Jesus is a threat. And bad news, friends, it can be good news. It can be good news. Because even though we have that impulse to flee, even though we don't want to come to Him, because it means uprooting the reality, the idols in our heart, we don't have to stay trapped. Why? Because we can realize that the power of God's light is stronger than the power of sin's darkness. Look at verse 21 again. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Hear me clearly. You don't have to fall impulse, fall prey to the impulse that, that will keep you trapped in the darkness of this world. You don't. You don't have to stay in the darkness that is suffocating you. You can awaken your soul to the realities of God's new creation in Jesus Christ, a new creation that will not stop until all things are made new. We can be free of sin's darkness and its claim on us. 
This is described in our passage as those who live by the truth, quote, live by the truth and come into the light. That doesn't mean that we come into the light because we're perfect and we want everybody to see it. What it means is we don't have to live in the falsehood and the lies of the darkness. We can come in and say, yeah, absolutely. We, I am a sinner and I'm lost without Jesus working on my behalf. And I'm not afraid of people knowing that. That I'm not just selfish in a generic sense, but that I really am a sinner. There's freedom in that. And we can live in the reality of that truth because as soon as we accept it, as soon as we accept the reality of the darkness, it begins to lose its power because why? The exposing and freeing light of Jesus has come to light in our heart. And we suddenly find that the light of Jesus is not a threat. It's an invitation into the grace that he has for us that will never, ever end. And being freed, what do we do? We can trade our evil deeds that we feel stuck in for the good deeds of God. And so those of us who are formerly just employed in selfish and sinful actions in this world are invited to put those deeds away, to leave those in the darkness that we are leaving behind and participate in the deeds of love which belong to the new creation of Jesus. And so then Jesus, the light of the world, begins to work through us and we become the light of the world. Jesus working through us because we are coming out of the power of darkness that held us bound, held us trapped. We are coming into the light and the freedom and the joy of the new creation of God. And in doing this, we become those who are like Jesus. And we find, I pray this often, that we become more and more like Him in every way that the likeness of Jesus will come to life in our hearts. And suddenly we find ourselves valuing what He values and loving what He loves. And this is an ongoing process, and sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back, but we're set on this path by the light of Jesus coming out of the darkness, following after Him in our community. And we don't have to uh, walk in the actions of darkness. We can walk in the deeds of light, living in love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those fruit of the Spirit that spring from the light of Jesus. And now, now because we are freed up from pretending, right? We've come into the light and our deeds can be exposed and we don't have to fear that because there's not shame from Jesus. There's grace from Him. Now we can walk into being people whose deeds are not done for selfish reasons, but they are done for the glory of God and the good of others. This is good news because this is why we were created. We were created, that glory of God that shines forth that like light, we were created as the image of God to reflect that back. We were created to reflect that light and to participate in the glory of God to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And that's what our passage means in verse 21. For those who come into the light, it is, quote, seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. For those of us who have come to the light of Jesus, we have faced the reality that we are without hope apart from Him. We're now free to live out our life's purpose, to love God and love others well. And so there's no fear. There's no fear regarding our deeds. We don't have to pretend and lie about who we are. We know that God has seen all. 
And we don't have to be afraid of the exposing light of Jesus because it's a light that brings freedom and peace for us. And because we know this, we can now do our good deeds to His glory, knowing that we're earning absolutely nothing, that we're not trying to earn a paycheck from an employer. We're living in the joy of being in the Father's house. And this is what our family does, loves. And His love for us, friends, is 100% secure, never dependent on our own works. We're never working to win His love So we can do deeds that spring from that freedom, that security, that assurance in the sight of God and for His glory. And not only this, we can recognize now that any good we do is not done in our own power, but it's done in His as He's making us new. And so the invitation for us today in this world of darkness where we are going to be so prone to run back into the darkness because we can stay hidden. Where there's so much fear of being shamed because of what we've done in the past or maybe what's happened to us, been done to us, to come to Jesus, to come to His light and to find it not as a fearful thing, but as a healing thing, as a freeing thing. Come to Him today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the light of Jesus, that in it we are not exposed to be shamed, but Lord, that our world is exposed, that we might flee to you in the darkness of this world, we might flee to you in freedom. Do this work in us, God. Do this work, that we might cling to you, Jesus, in faith, the forgiveness of our sins, the righteousness that we have before God, the transformation that you're working in our heart and the hope of a new world. Lord, I thank you for the peace that comes to us from him. Continue to let your light shine through us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.